0: And I'll go ahead and open this time in prayer. just ask God to bless us, help us understand and apply His word, and then we'll uh, we'll dive in. so let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, Wednesday nights to come together as a family in our church and to study your word and God, I'm thankful for the many different areas that that where that is happening tonight Uh, we're studying Daniel here there's the marriage class there's our kids and teens ministry and uh, father I pray that you would bless our church as we learn your word and that your word would be fuel used by your spirit to teach and train us as your children and uh, father I pray tonight as we look again at Daniel 4 that you would Help us remember what you want us to remember, but then as we think through specific ways to apply this, that we would see the, the relevance and the connection of these truths to our own lives. And so, Father, I, I ask that you would help us to see in your word what we can't see on our own, and then specifically an application that you, through your spirit, would help us to do what we can't do on our own. And so, Father, thank you so much, and I ask that you would bless this time We pray in your son Jesus' name, amen. All right, and a little bit of a frazzled day, Dell and I were connecting on that earlier that we've kind of had some jumbled days, so to be quite honest with you, I know I made this PowerPoint within the last, like, five hours, not really confident what we're going to see here. So, let's click through. Looks like here we have a brief review of Daniel 4, all right? Uh, and so just, just if you want to catch the flow of what's going on. And uh, on the half sheet, if you got a new one from this week, it is slightly different. Tried to just maybe summarize some things we said last week. So they aren't exactly the same, the, the chapter 4 walkthrough. So we'll just glide down through that again. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it's kind of the introduction of the story. And what happens in chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And he, again, is going to ask Daniel to interpret it. And then Daniel tells him what it means, and it's, it's not so great for the king. And then at the end, we have this story about pride and repentance and humility, if you kind of remember chapter 4. So it's introduced in verses 1 through 3. And uh, as we are studying through the, the narrative uh, of Daniel, we're looking for repeated ideas and some ideas repeated starting in the beginning of chapter 4, these ideas of great, mighty, and kingdom. And uh, we're going to see at the end of the chapter where that is specifically applied to God, that he's the great one, he's the king, he's the ruler, uh, it's his kingdom. And that is repeated uh, a bunch in this chapter. Then we move to chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. And this is where we get a little bit more context, where he has this dream. He calls his wise men. They can't figure out the interpretation. uh, But he knows Daniel is the one that can give me this. So he calls Daniel in. And uh, we'll just go ahead and look at it there in verse 9. What I think is unique here, uh, as we're really going to focus on Nebuchadnezzar tonight and his theological journey he understands something about Daniel in this chapter that he didn't know or recognize verbally in previous chapters. And it's captured in verse um, verse 8 and 9. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know... And if you remember back to chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar was really concerned about what he knew. He really wanted to know what his dreams meant. But now he knows something else. He knows that the spirit of the holy God is in Daniel. It's such a uh, unique way to describe someone. Why is Daniel the solution? It's not that he's smart or there's something about him as a person, but it's that he is faithful And he trusts the Lord, and God's Spirit is with Daniel. And we've seen that throughout the first three chapters. And so he notes that of Daniel. Daniel is able because the cause, because of the Holy Spirit that is in him. And so he knows that. That's why he calls Daniel. And we get to the second half of uh, verse 10 through verse 18, and he kind of shares what happens in his dream. And uh, we won't get into the specific details again, but there's a big tree and the tree gets chopped down. And that's, he's like, what does this mean, right? And what you'll note is as he tells Daniel about his dream, all of those repetitions come up again. Knowing, person who rules the kingdom, uh, the, the give repetition. Uh, let's maybe look at that if it's in verse 17. So this is in his dream. It's the watcher, the messenger from heaven, that is giving commentary on this tree that's been cut down. This decision, verse 17, is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know, there's a big repetition, that the most high rules and the kingdom of men, a, a lot of big repetition there. He gives it, gives the kingdom, or the power to rule to whomever he will, and that's a repetition from chapter one, where God gives Jerusalem Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. So all of these things, coming, themes, coming up again. He gives it to whomever he will, and he sets it over the lowest of men. And and that little chunk right there, that the living may know through the end of that verse, that's repeated multiple times. Uh, I think it's even in your outline here, verse twenty-five. Uh, Verse 32, um, I think if my notes are correct, but he he repeats that idea in chapter 4 multiple times. That was significant to Nebuchadnezzar as it relates to the lesson he's going to learn, that God is really in control, and uh, we need to know that it's God in control of the kingdoms of men, and he gives authority to the people he wants to give it to. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar is super great. And... uh, Again, uh, I'm not sure, verse 18, I think, man, trust your notes, I was right. Verse 18, um, he repeats that idea of the spirit of God, again, interestingly, um, that this has been revealed, uh, you are able, Daniel, to reveal the interpretation, to make it known to me because you have the spirit of God. Um, And I just, you know, hold on to that for later, hold on to that for later move on to verse 19 through 27 and this is Daniel giving his interpretation and what we know of the dream is that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar he's going to be chopped down but he will be restored after seven years and there's purpose here that's where you have that repetition in verse 25 that God is going to allow this to happen so that he knows Nebuchadnezzar is not in control God is in control And Daniel is giving this interpretation to him. And you see letter B there on the front half of the sheet. Interesting prescription or counsel that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 27. We'll go ahead and read that. Therefore, so in light of the dream being about you, and God is going to humble you, you need to realize that this is not good for you, Nebuchadnezzar. In light of that, king... Let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous or through righteousness and your iniquities. So break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Um, We talked about this last week. Tear away is kind of the the image, like to rip it it away. Um, Tear off the iniquities and pursue what is right. Uh, show mercy to the oppressed it's it 's a it 's a very severe dichotomy, like stop doing what you were doing, and you need to go this way and the word we would ascribe to a turn like that would be repentance and Daniel is graciously and kindly reminding the king that if you repent, God will forgive you, and you know perhaps he won 't bring this upon you if you learn what you're supposed to learn if you'll repent. And unfortunately, I mean, I don't know if I would say unfortunately, you know, God accomplished what he wanted to do, but he doesn't listen to Daniel in verse 27. And verse 28 through 37, we have Nebuchadnezzar's testimony of what happens. So verse 28 is really nice and succinct. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar The the dream came to be fulfilled, Um, and we will read through all this again, because I think it's where we're going to focus our time. At the end of 12 months, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? It's like just, man, how self-absorbed is this dude? And you'll remember from chapter 3, there was that repetition of worship the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That was over and over and over and over. And here you see even a repetition of that. Isn't this the kingdom that I have built? And uh, while the word was still in his mouth, verse 31, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know, and here's that big repetition of that same phrase again, until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, ate grass like oxen. His body was wet, With the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Great descriptions there. And verse 34, And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down or to humble. And we we focused last week on that verse 37. You go back to chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar, when he's speaking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he tells them, your God is not able to deliver you. Same, same words in verse 37. And how does his position, theological view of Jehovah, change? He thinks God is not able. There is no God able to deliver these three dudes from my power because I'm in control. And here at the cha- end of chapter 4, which we know is 20, 30 years later in his life, so there's been a lot of interaction at this point with Daniel and other Israelites, much later in his life, he realizes God is able, and he's able to humble prideful people. And, of course, who is he directly referencing? Himself. So it's a beautiful picture of, uh, of how God is at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And so that's where we're going to flip over here, and I really want to spend so... 20, 30 minutes here, and I want to think through, let me, uh, again, not quite sure what's up here. So the repetition of this idea comes up. This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learns, what he knows. The most high is the one in control. He gives power to whomever he chooses. And we just read this. This is his testimony in verse 37, and I've just bolded the words that I think are Kind of catch words or repeated words that have happened for the last four chapters, like what the, the collision of all of these ideas about worship and power who's really in control and and we should only worship the one who's really in control, and chapter three Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control and he's not chapter four he realizes yeah, I'm not in control, the most high is, and I should worship him, and that's his testimony right there um and then Super interesting, that very last phrase. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He recognizes God's ability to change him. Over 30-ish years, give or take years, where he's interacted with Daniel, and he knows who Daniel is, he knows his friends, he knows that they have the Spirit of God, he knows all those things. But his, at the end of all of that, this is the last we have of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, what is he left with about God? Like what is he what is his conclusion about God? It's it's a reflection on how God changes him. And we have a you know a big five dollar word that we use for how God changes us sanctification. And so what I think you have here, as we focus on application, we're gonna use Nebuchadnezzar as kind of like a test case or a case study um, for sanctification. So, letter A here, as we get to the second half, you, how chapter 4 kind of sets itself up is, you know, he gets this dream, he gets it interpreted for him. That's happened before in Daniel. It's not a new phenomenon. But this is directly, like, something bad is going to happen to him. There's a warning from God. You think about how gracious God would be to a pagan king. <coughs> to warn him of coming destruction through Daniel. And so Daniel's reminder to him as he interprets the dream is that repentance is a viable option for you. You don't have to continue in pride. You could actually repent. That's in verse 27. Um, And he does eventually learn that uh, that rule, uh, but he doesn't get it right away. And so will Nebuchadnezzar listen to the revelation in the dream? Well, It's a yes and a no. Initially, no, he doesn't listen. He reacts in a fleshly way. He continues to be prideful, does it his own way, and he reaps the consequences. Now, this rhetorical question, how many of us do that? We have a clear warning or revelation, a message from the Lord we know, like, wisdom brings success. We know that we're supposed to love other people and forgive as Christ forgave. Or, you know, don't be bitter. You know, we know all those things. You know, we're good Christians. We go to church. We know the Bible. We, we, we have the dream interpreted. You know, and that's huge air quotes there because we don't believe in dreams, right? But how often do we, knowing that, do just what Nebuchadnezzar does? So we're thinking about our own sanctification, We know that we have prideful tendencies. We know repentance is always a viable option through the grace and mercy of Christ, even as someone who's already believed his grace and mercy are always present and available to me in times of need. But how often is my first response, Man, how great am I at solving my own problems? And, you know, I won't, I won't project myself onto you, but, man, I do that all of the time. Like, oh, yeah, I can handle that. I, yeah, I can do that. And, you know, sometimes I can, practically, physically speaking. But I'm trusting in the wrong thing. And over time, that self-worship has ramifications. And so uh, we can see ourselves there, and I don't think that's a stretch, I think he's sharing his testimony to us so that we would learn from his example. So the first kind of question we have here, we look at him, will he listen? He doesn't listen at first, but then he gets to a point where he does. He gets to a point where he does humble himself, and he genuinely turns to the Lord. So just just like him, when I do that, and I, I recognize my own reaction was incorrect, Which, you know, if you deal with people at all, you have bad initial reactions. Uh, And maybe you don't say or do something, but you're thinking, you're feeling. We're we're very complex beings. And our our first reaction spiritually is usually inner. It's not punching a guy in the face. It's like really wishing I could, you know what I'm saying? And uh, when I react like that, and I then recognize that I've reacted like that, I look up, I need to humble myself. Okay, hey, I was wrong. I was wrong. Okay, God, you're right. I was wrong. and That is the step, necessary step of sanctification for every one of us. And it gets more complicated depending on our lives. But the hardest thing God will ever ask you to do is to humble yourself. You know, our, our hearts are so good. At being fleshly and sinful, I don't think we always realize the power of our own depravity that we we resist, humbling ourselves and letting the Spirit of God change us. And Nebuchadnezzar is telling you, like, "Hey, don't do what I did." Okay, so that's kind of the first thing: is will Nebuchadnezzar listen? It's like we could apply that, like, will I listen? Will I listen? Um. And as we said, after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself and worships. Um, And I I, I don't want to glide past that. That I actually think if you're not willing to humble yourself genuinely, we know you can like, you know, like asceticism, like a false humility. We know we can all put that face on when we come to church. I've done it. You've done it. We get it. Okay, we're human. Let's live with it but if we can't get to a point where we're genuinely humbling ourselves to the word of God and the spirit of God, we also won't genuinely worship. And there is a connection there that Nebuchadnezzar's humbling of himself, turning from his pride, that repentance, is actually how he begins to properly and genuinely worship God. And I think, you know, we we could... Man, i got to be careful, because you guys know how I can talk longer than I'm supposed to. Um, you know, uh, it's very easy to look for things when I come to church on a Sunday morning. Um, and the coffee and the donuts make me feel good, and there's people that I talk to that make me feel good, but there's still some resistance sometimes. And how do I fix that? And most people's reaction to a situation like that is to blame. Well, I feel the way I feel because of some other thing, but especially when it relates to corporate worship. The first place we should always look is at our own heart. Am I genuinely humbled right now in the presence of God with his word to be preached? We're singing truths about an all-powerful God. Is my heart genuinely submitted to that or just to let you into Charlie's little echo chamber or am I too concerned about my fantasy football lineup or am I too concerned about my lunch or, you know, I have to get this work or homework done later this afternoon and I'm thinking about that. Those things can easily cause a fleshly reaction that undermines genuine worship and the answer for me a lot of Sundays, like right over here, right in the sound booth, is, Charlie, you need to humble yourself. <laughs> and uh, I'm not great at that. But God is changing me. And just like he is all of us. And so I think that's a great, uh, a great connection to make there. So lo- moving on to letter B, I really want to look at how God did this work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Okay, so note that God uses specific people and the parentheses is just nice to make it relatable to us with their own problems. Realize that this conversion in chapter four is the result of, like we said, about 30 years of influence from Daniel to this king. Starting when Daniel's a teenager to now in his 30s or 40s, he finally sees the king get it. That's amazing to me. And uh, it wasn't just Daniel, by the way. There were the Chaldeans that were a huge frustration to Nebuchadnezzar. You could go back and look when when the Chaldeans and the other magicians and and wise people couldn't do what he wanted. He got super frustrated. What do you call that? That's a fleshly reaction. He has an expectation of someone. He's not getting what he wants, and he's ready to kill. Okay. And I think there's a passage down here we're going to look at later or maybe just reference. James 4, that exact same progression happens you wanted something, you didn't get it, you murdered. That's Nebuchadnezzar, when he didn't get what he wanted from the Chaldeans. And then there's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we have different interactions with them, where they're testifying and exemplifying genuine theology to the king. And so the point there being is that how, how did God bring this transformation to bear in this pagan king's life? He used people. It doesn't happen without people. Also note that he used very specific trials. Uh, So it kind of all starts off with Nebuchadnezzar where he's having these dreams and he can't sleep at night. Now, I hope that you guys aren't having like revelatory dreams at night. I'm fairly confident you're not. But there are maybe sometimes you're so stressed from something happening in your life that you struggle to sleep. For me, this past week, uh, are there any girl soccer players in here? There are not. Well, there's one. Sarah, what happened to us on Thursday night? Oh, it's way worse than that. We're in Chicago at like 7 o'clock, and the transmission on our passenger shuttle, why that's relevant is there's not a lot of tow trucks that can tow a shuttle bus. Uh, our, our transmission goes out, and I had a doozy of a time sleeping that night. Um, The point being that there are specific trials that God allows, intentional, to humble us. And why would he want to humble us? Well, go back one slide. Genuine worship is the result of genuine humility. So for Nebuchadnezzar, he's losing sleep. He has dreams. He has a lot of... uh, So you're, you're... this is where your handout doesn't match a PowerPoint. People not listening to his demands. Insubordinate people sounds way better than that. So this, this happened after that, I'm sure. Um, he's got all these pesky Jewish kids who won't listen to him. He's the king. He's the one that's powerful. Worship the stinking statue, and they won't listen. Do you think that would be frustrating to you? Parents, how frustrated you get when your kids don't do what you ask? You with me? Now, I'm not a parent, but I've counseled at camp enough to know, man, that is the worst. Um, Okay, so he has uh, insubordinate people, and then at the end of this, in chapter 4, he has seven years in the wilderness living like an animal. And we paralleled this last week with the people of Israel. Uh, The whole first generation of Israel dies in the wilderness, and the second generation wanders for 40 years. And by the way, if you look down at your sheet, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6 talks about that, that God intentionally designed the wilderness wandering To humble, it specifically says it, to humble them that they would know what was in their heart. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. So how is God working in Nebuchadnezzar's life? There's specific people, God's allowing specific trial, and he's all doing it to bring one specific goal to bear. He wants him to turn from his sin, humble uh, knowledge, that's again, we have some redaction going on here. Let's see. There we go. So he wants him to know who he is. God wants Nebuchadnezzar to really know who he is. Theology, he wants him to know that he's in control. He wants him to humble himself and worship the right God. And all of that comes about through 30 years of intentional ministry in Nebuchadnezzar's life through specific people and specific trials to accomplish this goal of sanctification. Uh, so Let's get to some practical thinking. So how would you really start to bring this to bear on your own life? A big thought here. God uses trial to transform you. Uh, You can see this um, once you get down to number two, the practicality of God's sovereign reign and sanctification. You could ask yourself this question. Is it up on there? It's not. Okay. Is God working in in similarly? Man, what a day. Is God working in a similar way or similarly in your life? In, in parentheses, like Nebuchadnezzar. And I think we have a wealth of passages that would teach us, yes, he is. Uh, so, three passages. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 6. I think we have time. Let's go ahead and turn to that. Let's, that's the famous last words. I think we have time for that. So... We'll just read Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3 for the sake of time. What are we looking at here? This is an Old Testament example of where God does use trials to transform people. And you're going to see some of the key words from Daniel come up here. Knowledge, humility, the heart. Okay, so Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And here's Moses. He's speaking to the second generation of Israel right before they're about to go and possess the land. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. And there's three infinitives here if you're interested in the grammar stuff. To humble you, to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. That man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So, a very simple transaction is happening. Forty years of trial. What's the goal? He's trying to show them what's at work in their heart. He's intentionally inflicting them, humbling them, so that they would know hey, you know what? Our life doesn't come from bread. Our life really comes from the Lord. It's a very similar theological idea to the end of D- Daniel 4, if you catch that. And uh, Moses would certainly agree here that God is able to humble those who are prideful. And I would love to hear Moses' personal testimony on that, because he disobeyed and had to go through 40 years of humbling in the wilderness and didn't get to go in. Uh, you know, So great food for thought there. Uh, The next couple of passages, James 1 and James 4, uh, and let's go ahead and turn there as we quickly run out of time. And again, we're just focusing on this reality of trial, the reality of trial. James 1, and we'll read uh, 2 and 3, uh, 2 through 4, sorry. My brethren, so speaking to Christians, believers, my brethren, count it all joy. Think about trials in a joyful way. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, what's the transaction that's happening? How do you get from... Where you are to lacking nothing. That sounds good, right? Trials. You know that what God is doing through the trial is humbling you, and as you humble yourself to His Spirit and the Word, He changes who you are. He changes your character, He changes your loves. That is sanctification. Uh, James 4 puts this in uh, a very specific circumstance of conflict. Uh, we don't have time to really get into it. But chapter 4, verse 1, he asks a question Where do wars and fights come from? Anyone in here that lives with someone else, has family? Man, what a great question, right? So you fight with your friend, your parent, your child, your coworker, your boss, the random dude at the gas station. That's not a personal story, just came to mind. Uh, where do those fights come from? What does he say? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Your heart's the real problem. Just like Deuteronomy 8, just like James 1, there's something internally we're trying to work on. And um, just jump down to uh, verse 6, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now that's a little bit that's worded a little bit differently, has a a new theological idea to it, which is grace. But how similar is that to Daniel four thirty seven? God is able to humble those who are prideful, who walk in pride. He gives grace, he favors, blesses the ones who don't continue in pride, but are willing to humble themselves. So uh, the point being here. Um, God uses trials. What are three main categories of trials that might be in your life right now? Difficult people, adverse circumstances, and uh, the reality of temptation. That's a unique theological problem, but we don't have time to get into it. Uh, so again, what's the question? Is God working in a similar or similarly in a similar way in your life? I don't think it's hard for us to identify that there are trials in my life. And if we connect the theological dots in Daniel, who is the one who rules in the kingdom of men and is sovereignly allowing all of those problems in your life right now? It's not me. Praise the Lord. It's God. Uh, So uh, I think the first takeaway here is just like Nebuchadnezzar, we can respond in humility to the trials that God places in our lives, uh, when something goes wrong, I don't react with, Yahoo, this is great. You know, I usually react in fleshly, angry, bitter ways. And the answer is really simple. Humble yourself. Allow the word to train you to yield. And that's exactly what uh, 7 through 10 talks about there in James 4. Therefore, because of that, submit, resist, resist, Draw near to God, cleanse yourself from sin. Uh, verse 10 is really famous. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. Uh, so that's, that's the first direct application. Um, you can see we would have had a shot in the world of getting to that last week, right? <laughs> Just way too long. Um, so I think it's very valuable to think that way, that God uses these trials to transform me. Is he working like this in your life? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I think there's another great takeaway, and it's from God using people. So practical thought, too. God uses people to aid in transforming other people. Um, is God using you similarly? I got the grammar correct on that phrase. Is God using you similarly in others' lives? So think about, you know, most of you don't know any pagan kings personally, right? Right? But how many of you know unsaved people, or they could even be believers, maybe people you've gone to church with for dozens or dozens of years, right? Is God using you as a means of sanctification in someone else's life? And if any of you are parents here, man, I hope your answer is yes, uh, because that's God's design for the parent to be the primary discipler of their kids, but then, in the church, as a family, this should be happening all the time. Like, the way we encourage each other, the way we hold each other accountable, the way we testify of truth to one another, even sharing praises. Like, man, look at what God has done. Like, that is an, a way that we are used in each other's lives. And uh, so, uh, Daniel, man, I got really tiny, really quick up there. I got, I'm not good at making PowerPoints. Um, Brittany's way better at this. I'll just send it to you next week. Um, Daniel and others have a role in Nebuchadnezzar's life over 30 years. And if Daniel and his friends, and there's probably other Israelites, if they're not faithful to be genuine worshipers of God, to be walking in humility, to have the Spirit of God present in their life around this dude, what happens? Now, you know, another interesting theological problem you know, God's sovereign, but if, what if they, with free will, didn't do what God wanted them to do? We can talk about that some other time. You know, we'll go get coffee. And, you know, that, that's not an easy conversation sometimes to think that through. But God used them, and so I think it's reasonable to say if they wouldn't have done it, God would have had to use someone else. Um, so think about your role in someone else's life. And we certainly do not have time to really unpack all of what is in 2 Corinthians 2 through 4. Um, I'm just going to click through some things here. What 2 Corinthians 2 through 4, and really 2 through 7, is, is it is Paul describing to a church, the Corinthian church, a church, by the way, that he didn't have a great relationship with. Uh, explaining to them his ministry philosophy as a defense of the way he interacted with them. And so what he really unfolds in chapters 2 through 4 is how do you do, a, do ministry effectively? And he uses these two illustrations of smell and light. And the idea, the implication is really simple, that Christians should give off a specific odor, aroma, And that doesn't mean like you wear Old Spice, Uh, like we have a business decision at the next meeting, like we're all going to wear Old Spice now, so they all know what the Christians smell like. Now, it's a great illustration. It's that what comes out of you, from your heart, what diffuses out of your soul is like an aroma, and it should be like Christ. And so part of Paul's ministry philosophy is that when I'm around unsaved people, wherever I go, they should smell Christ, and that's going to lead those people to him. And I would say, well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that's what they did. Anytime Daniel is around this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, what is the aroma coming out of his life? It is a transformed character by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so then, that's really all in chapter 2, the smell thing. Uh, The light illustration becomes dominant in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And he talks about the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament, how when they would see him, he's like bright and shining, and it changed their appearance. Like Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. Moses spends time in the presence of God, receiving the law, and he comes down, and his face is glowing. That's a literal story. Second Corinthians 3 talks about it, but it's Exodus 34. And he's making a comparison that if I am really spending time in the presence of God, there should be something about me that's changed too. And the difference is uh, chapter 3, verse 18. The presence of God in the New Testament doesn't reside in a tabernacle or a temple like it did for Moses in the Old Testament. The presence of God indwells you through the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is what convicts you of truth and leads you to application of the Word. And that's why it's so important for believers, we talked about this maybe about a month ago now, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's His presence that transforms us, produces, in quotes, the light, so that when we're around other people, what is the influence that we have on them? Is it my personality? Is it my intelligence? Is it my uh, whatever, power, intrigue? I don't know. Is it any of those things about me, or is the main influence of my life the transformed character of Christ that is present in me through the work of the Holy Spirit? If you remember, I told you to hold on to that phrase in Daniel where he notes that the Spirit of God is active in Daniel's life. If you remember that? And that is absolutely true of New Testament Christians. People should notice a difference in our lives because of the Spirit that's transforming us. And if they're not smelling that, or they're not seeing that light, uh, I would say that there's probably a problem. And we already know the solution to that problem. Humble yourself and let the Spirit of God change you so that you're genuinely worshiping the only person that deserves it. When we react in fleshly ways, we usually are worshiping ourselves. And pride loves to worship itself and preserve itself and give you or me exactly what I want, whether it's right or wrong, too much or too little. Our flesh Wants to self-gratify. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God works through humility. God extends His grace when we recognize that our flesh is not the right way and that I desperately need the Spirit of God. And as I turn to Him, He transforms me. And that process... Is that the last thing? Um, Oh, just... That That process of sanctification, turning to the, the word and the spirit, learning to humble myself, that is, in Paul's ministry philosophy, how he accomplishes evangelism. He's not good at knocking on doors. He's not good at holding the crowd. He's not a big personality. He has the aroma and the light of Christ. And that is what changes people. Paul knows if he doesn't have that, it doesn't matter where he goes. no churches are being planted, no one's getting saved if he doesn't have that. The Spirit of God producing Christ in his life. And uh, we're getting close I got to be done. But just want to note that also trials are here in Second Corinthians. Uh, he testifies of you know almost dying in Second Corinthians eleven multiple times, and you see that as God uses the trials to humble you. Right alongside of that, he wants to use that change to minister to other people. And I think we see both of those things in the example of Nebuchadnezzar. So, um, what's super practical about this? Well, (laughs) you and I, I don't want to, this isn't spiritualizing the text, trying to find meaning where there's not meaning, I think there's a a real application here of considering that you are just like Nebuchadnezzar and that God is using other people and trials to humble you. And in pride, he will resist you, James 4. But if you'll recognize what's at work in your heart and turn away from the flesh, turn from the prideful response and humble yourself in prayer and confession He will give you grace. He'll change your heart. And and that's not something you do like once a a month or, you know, on Sundays or Wednesday night when we pray. My best days spiritually, I do that like a couple dozen times. So-and-so walks into my office and is like, hey, Charlie, did you get that email I sent? What's going on in Charlie's heart at that moment? Well, usually it's not like, oh, joy, work, you know. Or, you know, your car breaks down. You know, we've, I've had a lot of those. The shuttle breaks down in Chicago. What's your first reaction to that? Mine is not like, oh, humble yourself, oh, goody. Like, we don't react that way because we're still sinful humans. But we now have the God who is able to humble us, residing in us through his spirit. And so, first practical application, man, I'm just like Nebuchadnezzar. I need to humble myself. I think what's really encouraging about that in the church is if you become diligent to train yourself, to humble yourself like that, man, he's going to use you. Uh, I think about the guys that were very important to me as a high schooler or a young man when I came to college. And, you know, honestly, there's not much spectacular about them, but they were humble and submitted to the word of God. And I knew something was different about them when I spent time with them. And I think we would all, as God's children, want that. And I don't think that's bad to want, like to be used in other people's lives. And it's the humility that God is trying to produce through trial and people that will bring that. Uh, So that's, uh, you know, way more application than you ever thought you would want from Daniel chapter 4. I hope that's encouraging to you. It's really encouraging to me. Um, And, you know, I'll just give you a little encouragement as you get into some groups and pray. Um, Maybe God has put some trials in your life. Uh, We read about some in our church family in the Caring Post. And uh, it's very easy to pray for, like, oh, God, help us, you know, to be healed from the physical ailment or help work out the details of this circumstance that went the wrong way. But we now know another really great way to pray about those things. God, would you use that trial to make me or to make them more like Christ so that they can reach the people that you've placed around them? And that might not happen tomorrow. It might happen 30 years from now. But that's something you can pray about as you go through those trials today like god let that produce in me the the glory of your son so that's daniel 4 lord willing we'll be in daniel 5 next week